Twice Bought by R. M. Valentine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Thornton, Miranda, New Zealand. Twice Bought, Chapter 16. Little Tolly Trevor and Leaping Buck, being about the same age and having similar tastes and propensities, though very unlike each other in temperament, soon became fast friends, and they both regarded Mahogany Drake, the trapper, with almost idolatrous affection. "'Would you care to come with me to-day, Tolly? I'm going to look for some meat on the heights.' It was thus that Drake announced his intention to go a-hunting one fine morning after he'd disposed of a breakfast that might have sustained an ordinary man for several days. "'Care to go with you?' echoed Tolly. "'I just think I should. But look here, Mahogany,' continued the boy with a troubled expression. I promised to go out on the lake to-day with Leaping Buck, and I must keep my promise. You know you told us only last night in that story about the Chinaman and the Grizzly that no true man ever breaks his promise. Right, lad, right, returned the trapper. But you can go and ask the little buck to join us, and if he's inclined you can both come. Only you must agree to leave your tongues behind you if you do, for it behoves hunters to be silent, and from my experience of you, I rather think you're too fond of chattering. Before Drake had quite concluded his remark, Tolly was off in search of his red-skinned bosom friend. The manner in which the friendship between the red boy and the white was instituted and kept up was somewhat peculiar and almost incomprehensible, for neither spoke the language of the other, except to a very slight extent. Leaping Buck's father had, indeed, picked up a pretty fair smattering of English during his frequent expeditions into the goldfields, which, at the period we write of, were being rapidly developed. Paul Bevan, too, during occasional hunting expeditions among the red men, had acquired a considerable knowledge of the dialect spoken in that part of the country. But Leaping Buck had not visited the diggings with his father, so that his knowledge of English was confined to the smattering which he had picked up from Paul and his father. In like manner, Tolly Trevor's acquaintance with the native tongue consisted of the little that had been imparted to him by his friend Paul Bevan. Mahogany Drake, on the contrary, spoke Indian fluently, and it must be understood, in the discourses which he delivered to the two boys, he mixed up English and Indian in an amazing compound which served to render him intelligible to both, but which, for the reader's sake, we feel constrained to give in the trapper's ordinary English. It was in a place just like this, said Drake, stopping with his two little friends on reaching a height, and turning round to survey the scene behind him, that a queer splinter of a man, who was fond of calling himself an ornithologist, shot a grizzly bar with a mere pop-gun that was only fit for a squawking babby's plaything. Oh, do sit down, Mahogany, cried little Trevor, in a voice of entreaty. I'm so fond of hearing about grizzlies, and I'd give all the world to meet one myself. So would Bucky here, wouldn't you? The Indian boy, whose name Tolly had thus modified, tried to assent to this proposal by bending his little head in a stately manner, in an imitation of his dignified father. "'Well, I don't mind if I do,' replied the trapper, with a twinkle of his eyes. Mahogany Drake was blessed with that rare gift, the power to invest with interest almost any subject, no matter how trivial or commonplace, on which he chose to speak, whether it was the charm of a musical voice or the serious tone and manner of an earnest man, we cannot tell, but certain it is that whenever or wherever he began to talk, men stopped to listen, and were held enchained until he had finished. 
On the present occasion the trapper seated himself on a green bank that lay close to the edge of a steep precipice, and laid his rifle across his knees, while the boys sat down one on each side of him. The view from the elevated spot on which they sat was most exquisite, embracing the entire length of the valley at the other end of which the Indian village lay, its inhabitants reduced to mere specks and its wigwams to little cones by distance. Owing also to the height of the spot, the view of surrounding mountains was extended so that range upon range was seen in softened perspective, while a variety of lakelets with their connecting watercourses, which were hidden by foliage in the lower grounds, were now open to view. Glowing sunshine glittered on the waters and bathed the hills and valleys, deepening the near shadows and intensifying the purple and blue of the more distant. "'It often makes me wonder,' said the trapper in a reflective tone, as if speaking rather to himself than to his companions, "'why the Almighty has made the world so beautiful and perfect and allowed mankind to grow so awful bad.' The boys did not venture to reply, but as Drake sat gazing in dreamy silence at the far-off hills, little Trevor, who recalled some of his conversations with the Rose of Oregon, ventured to say, "'Perhaps we'll find out some day, though we don't understand it just now.' "'True, lad, true,' returned Drake. "'It would be well for us if we always looked at it in that light, instead of finding fault with things as they are, for it stands to reason that the Maker of all can fall into no mistakes.' "'But what about the ornithologists?' said Tolly, who had no desire that the conversation should drift into abstruse subjects. "'Aye, aye, lad, I'm coming to him,' replied the trapper, with the humorous twinkle that seemed to hover always about the corner of his eyes, ready for instant development. "'Well, you must know that this was the way of it, and it do make me laugh yet when I think of the face that spider-legged critter going at the rate of twenty miles an hour or thereabouts with a most awful-looking grizzly bar pelting after him. Hist! Look there, Tolly. A chance of your pop-gun. The trapper pointed as he spoke to a flock of wild duck that was coming straight towards the spot on which they sat. The pop-gun, to which he referred, was one of the smooth-bore flintlock single-barreled fowling pieces which traders were in the habit of supplying to the natives at that time, and which Unico had lent to the boy for the day, with his powder-horn and ornamented shot-pouch. For the three hunters to drop behind the bank on which they had been sitting was the work of a moment. Young though he was, Tolly had already become a fair and ready shot. He selected the largest bird in the flock, covered it with a deadly aim, and pulled the trigger. But the click of the lock was not followed by an explosion, as the birds whirled swiftly on. "'Ah, my boy,' observed the trapper, taking the gun quietly from the boy's hand and proceeding to chip the edge of the flint. You should never go a-hunting without seeing that your flint is properly fixed. But I did see it to it, replied Tolly in a disappointed tone, and it struck fire splendidly when I tried it before starting. True, boy, but the thing is worn too short, and though its edge is pretty well, you didn't screw it firm enough, so it got drove back a bit, and the hammerhead as well as the flint strikes the seal, do you see? There now, prime it again, and be sure you wipe the pan before putting in the powder. It's not worth while to be disappointed about so small a matter. You'll get plenty more chances. See, there's another flock coming. Don't hurry, lad. If you want to be a good hunter, always keep cool and take time. Better lose a chance than hurry. Chance lost, you see, is only a chance lost. But blazing in a hurry is a bad lesson that you've got to unlearn. 
The trapper's advice was cut short by the report of Tolly's gun. The next moment a fat duck, striking the ground in front of them, rolled fluttering to their feet. "'Not badly done, Tolly,' said the trapper with a nod as he reseated himself on the bank, while Leaping Buck picked up the bird, which was by that time dead, and the young sportsman recharged his gun. "'Just a little too hurried. If you'd taken only half a second more time to put the gun to your shoulder, you'd have brought the bird to the ground dead, and you boys can learn too soon that you should never give needless pain to critters that you've got to kill. You must shoot, of course, or you'd starve, but always make sure of killing at once, and the only way to do that is to keep cool and take time. You see, if it ain't the aim you take that matters so much as the coolness and steadiness with which you put the gun to your shoulder. If you only do that steady and without hurry, the gun is sure to point straight for it hard, and then the aim will look after itself. Nevertheless, it was smartly done, lad, for it's a difficult shot when a wild duck comes straight for your head like a cannonball. But what about the ornithologist? said Tolly, who, albeit well pleased at the trapper's complimentary remarks, did not quite relish his criticism. Yes, yes, I'm coming to that. Well, as I was saying, they make me laugh yet when I thinks on it. How he did run, to be sure. Grease Lightning could scarce have kept up with him. But where was he a-running to, and why? asked little Trevor impatiently. Now, you little boy, said Drake, with a look of grave remonstrance, don't you go and get impatient. Patience is one of the backwards virtues, without which you'll never get on at all. If you don't cultivate patience, you might as well go and live in the settlements or the big cities, where it don't much matter what a man is. It'll be no use to stop in the wilderness. There's Leaping Button out, sitting as quiet as a redskin warrior on guard. Take a lesson from him, lad, and restrain yourself. Well, as I was going to say, I was out setting my traps somewheres about the headwaters of the Yellowstone River at the time when I fell in with the critter. I couldn't rightly make out what he was, for, though I'd seen most of all sorts of men in my day, I'd never met with one of this sort before. It wasn't his bodily shape that puzzled me, though that was queer enough, but his occupation that staggered me. It was a long, thin, spider-shaped article that seemed to have run to seed, all stalked with a frowsy top, for his hair was long and dry and fly about. I'm six foot one myself, but my set was a mere joke to his stride. He seemed split up to the neck, like a pair of human compasses, and his clothes fitted so tight that he might have passed for a living skeleton. Well, it was close upon sundown, and I was jogging along to my tent in the bush when I came to an opening where I saw the critter down on one knee and his gun up taking aim at someone. I stopped to let him have his shot, for I counted a mortal sin to spoil a man's sport, and I looked hard to see what he was going to let drive at. But never a thing could I see, far or near, except a small bit of a bird about the size of a big bee, sitting on a branch not far from a nose, and cocking its eye at him as much to say, "'Well, you are a queerin'. "'Surely,' thought I, "'he ain't going to blaze at that?' but I'd scarce thought it when he did blaze and down it came flop on the back, as dead as mutton. "'Well, stranger,' says I, going forward, "'you do seem to be hard up for vittles when you'd shoot a small thing like that.' "'Not at all, my good man,' says he, and the critter had a kindly snarl and a sensible face enough. "'You must know that I'm shooting birds for scientific purposes. I'm an ornithologist.' "'Oh,' say I, for I didn't rightly know what else to say to that. "'Yes,' says he, "'and see here.' With that, he opens a bag he had on his back and showed me a lot of birds, big and small, that he'd been shooting, 
and then he pulls out a small book and which he'd been making pictures of them, and really I was rather took with that, for the critter had got them down there almost as good as nature. That actually looked as if they was alive. Shut the book, sir, says I, or they'll escape. It was only a small joke I meant, but the critter took it for a bigger than laughed at it, or totally made me half ashamed. Do you know any of these birds, he asked, after we looked at a lot of them? Know them, says I. I should think I does. Why, I lived along there ever since I was a bubby. Indeed, says he, and he got quite excited. How interesting! And do you know anything about their habits? If you mean by their ways of going on, says I, there's hardly a thing about them I don't know, except what they think, and sometimes I've a sort of notion I can make a pretty fair guess at that too. Will you come to my camp and spend the night with me? he asked, getting more and more excited. No stranger I won't, says I but if you'll come to mine, I'll feed you and make you heartily welcome, for somehow I took quite a fancy to the critter. I'll go, says he, and he went, and we had such a night of it. He didn't let me have a wink of sleep till pretty near daylight the next morning, and asked me more questions about birds and beasts and fishes than I was ever asked before in the whole course of my life. And it warn't yesterday I was born. I began to feel quite like a settlement boy at school, and he set it all down too, as fast as I could speak, in the queerest handwriting that you ever did see. At last I couldn't stand it no longer. Mr. Ornithologist, says I. Well, says he, there's a peculiar beast in them parts, says I, as has got some pretty stiff and settled habits. Is there, says he, waking up quite fresh, though he'd grown sleepy? Yes, says I, and it's an obstinate sort of brute that won't change its habits for nobody. One of these habits is that it turns up in the night quite regular and has a good snooze before going to work next day. His name is Mahogany Drake, and that's me, so I'll bid you good night, stranger. With that, I knocked the ashes out of my pipe, stretched myself out with my feet to the fire, and rolled my blanket round me. Could have laughed again at this as if it was a great joke, but he shut up his book, put it in the bag of little birds under his head for a pillow, spread himself out over the camp like a great spider that was awkward in the use of its limbs, and went off to sleep even before I did. And that was sharp practice, let me tell you. Well, continued the trapper, clasping his great bony hands on one of his knees and allowing the lines of humour to play on his visage, while the boys drew nearer in open-eyed expectancy, we slept about three hours, and then had a bit of breakfast, after which we parted, for he said he knew his way back to the camp, where he left his friends. But the poor critter didn't know nothing, except ornithology. He lost himself, and took to wandering in a circle after I left him. I came to know it, because I struck his trail the same afternoon. There could be no mistake in it, the length of stride being something awful. So I followed it up. I hadn't gone far, when I came to a pretty place much like this, as I said before. And when I was looking at the view, for I'm fond of a fine view, it takes a man's mind off trapping and victuals somehow, I heard a most awful screech, and then another. A moment later, and the ornithologist busted out of the bushes with his long legs going like the legs of a big water wagtail. It was too far off to look at his face, but his hair was tremendous to behold. When he saw the precipice before him, he gave a most horrible yell, for he knew that he couldn't escape that way from whatever was chasing him. I couldn't well help him. There was a wide gully between me and him, and it was too far off for a fair shot. Howsoever, I stood ready. 
Suddenly I see the critter face, right up and down on one knee like a pair of broken compasses. I went the shotgun, and at the same moment out busted a great old grizzly bear from the bushes. Crack! went my rifle at once. But I could see that the ball didn't hurt him much, although it hit him fair on the head. Loaded in hot haste, I observed that the ornithologist sat like a post till the bar was within six foot of him, when he let drive both barrels of the pot gun straight in its face. Then he jumped to one side with a spurt like a grasshopper, and the bear tumbled head over heels and got up with an angry growl to rub its face. Then it made a savage rush forward and fell over a low bank, jumped up again, and went slap again in a face of rock. I seed at once that it was blind. The small shot used by the critter for his little birds put out both of its eyes, and it went blundering about while the ornithologist kept well out of its way. I knew it was safe, so waited to see what he'd do, and what do you think he did? "'Shoved his knife into him?' suggested Tolly Trevor, in eager anxiety. "'What? Shove his knife into a healthy old bar with nothing gone but his sight? No, lad, he did no such thing, so mad as that, but he ran coolly up to it and screeched in its face. Of course the bear went straight at the sound held to skelter, and the ornithologist turned around on the edge of the precipice, screeching as he went. When he got there, he pulled up and darted to one side, but the bear went slap over, and I believe I'm well within the mark, when I said that the bear turned five complete somersaults before it got to the bottom, where it came to the ground with a whack that would have busted an elephant. I don't think we found a whole bone in its carcass with an ornithologist helped me cut it up in that camp that night. "'Well done!' exclaimed little Trevor with enthusiasm. "'And what came of the ornithologist? What do you call him?' "'That's more than I can tell, lad. He went off with the bear's claws to show his friends, and I never saw him again.' Well, look there, boys, continued the trapper in a suddenly lowered tone of voice, while he threw forward and cocked his rifle. Do you see our supper? What? Where? exclaimed Tolly in a soft whisper, straining his eyes in the direction indicated. The sharp crack of the trapper's rifle immediately followed, and a fine buck lay prone upon the ground. Twas an easy shot, said Jake, recharging his weapon. Only a man needs a little experience before he can fire down a precipice correctly. Go along, boys. End of chapter 16